Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity and here comes Viander Cross, Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home, naturalism the leader, Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down, naturalism still in front, he ran out near the line but naturalism wins at a half length to Viander Cross in a bumping finish. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and the High Gang Group. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. I've never met an Australian jockey with a more diversified background than Henry Stephen Troy. Better known as Harry Troy in racing circles in Australia and Macau, the recently retired 70-year-old was a professional jockey for close to 30 years, spending his last two seasons under contract in Macau. Competing almost exclusively in country New South Wales, Harry rode 1,492 winners and posted some impressive statistics. He topped the sensory of winners in five seasons between 92 and 97. In the 1993-94 season, he was the leading country-based jockey in the nation with 118 winners. He was in his mid-40s when he went to Macau, where in just one and a half seasons, he rode 41 winners. With top jockeys pouring into the colony from all over the world, Harry knew his contract was unlikely to be renewed. He quit the saddle and embarked on a totally different career direction, successfully applying for the job as mounting yard presenter and trainee race caller under New Zealand commentator Bruce Sherwin. When Bruce decided to return to New Zealand, Harry Troy became Macau's resident English-speaking race caller, a job he handled with distinction for more than 20 years. His versatility saw him venture into several other roles, including Master of Apprentices, racing writer for the Macau Jockey Club and a contributor to Racing and Sports Australia and ANZ Bloodstock News. He also handled all promotional videos and advertising for the Jockey Club. Harry retired late last year and is still in Macau, which is currently in total lockdown. He's an avid listener to our podcast, as he told me by email a couple of weeks ago. It occurred to me immediately that Harry Troy himself should make an appearance on the show. Harry, you've probably picked up some of the native tongue by now, mate, but we'll do this interview in the English you grew up with in the Australian bush. 
Yes, John, thank you and good morning and uh, thanks for having me <clears throat> on the on your program. Um, yeah, I've picked up a bit of the native lingo, John. I can manage, but uh, still the old English bush boy. Still got a bit of the old bush lingo about me as well. Yeah, good on you. Turning back the clock to 1997. Now, initially, you thought you had a writing contract lined up in Mauritius, but before accepting it, you rang former AJC chairman of stewards John Shrek to get his feedback on the place. John was working in Macau at that stage, but he had worked in Mauritius previously, so he knew the lay of the land. He certainly did, and he gave me a, a good, gave the trainer a good recommendation. And uh, Hughes May Grow was the trainer. Mm. And uh, it looked good and I accepted it. I thought to myself, I'm at the age now, <clears throat> 46. Mm. If I'm going to have a stint overseas, I better get stuck into it. So we're all lined up ready to go. And then they got their previous jockey back from South Africa. He became available. Uh. So the owners voted to take him. Hence, I ended up uh, giving John Shrek a call. Uh, rather, John Shrek gave me a call, I should mm. say, after that, sometime after, and lined up the job in Macau. Now, Harry, the trainer to whom you were contracted in Macau had had a couple of really good seasons leading up to your arrival, but his horses were all on their marks by the time you got to ride for him. Yeah, that was true. The trainer was uh, Wing Lung, and mm. he was quite a popular trainer here, had been in the harness racing uh, when Macau originally opened because it was a harness racing club and he was a champion harness driver. Mm. And uh, he had a great season before I came. He beat George Moore, the legendary, the great George Moore. So I thought, gee, this is a cracking opportunity. But when I arrived, all the horses were pretty much rated up to their best and he had a pretty much worn-out stable. He had no new blood. So it it was a bit of a tough go for the first month. Mm. Then he did have a few horses about ready to win, but I had a very quiet first month. Then I got some more connections, and then I had a ripping last three months of the season riding 23 winners. Mm. Well, you won 41 races in about a season and a half, Top jockeys were coming from all over the world to Macau at that time. You were sneaking up to about 47 years of age and you thought it was time to quit before you suffered a licence rejection. Now, you got wind of the fact that the Macau Jockey Club were looking for a parade yard expert and a trainee race caller. So your application went in very quickly. It did, John. I actually um, played about at home on a VHS machine and linked it up with a karaoke machine and I played one of their races and I dubbed a call-in of my own mm. just to give them a listen to my voice, sent that in and uh, was lucky got the job. And, mm. yes, I, I thought about going back to Australia, picking up where I'd left off, and I thought, gee, you know, you're pushing 48. Mm. I've had a lot of falls. I'm fit and well and it might be a good time to, to look ahead. And uh, that's when I made the decision. Now, Harry, let's go back to your previous experience as a caller. It all started in the early 1980s 
when our great mate Colin Hodges, who's still going strong, got you up to call a race at a non-tab meeting at Ningen, way out west, and then it happened again later at Warren. He must have had some confidence in you at that time. It was quite funny because he heard an interview uh, on 2DU Dubbo when I was um, I'd won a, a race, and there was a guy used to do um, Jerry Collins used to do interviews, and Cole said, "Gee, I heard an interview the other day um, with Jerry Collins." He said, y- "You'd probably make a good race caller," and I said, "Gee, you know, Collins is a." Always mm. like the idea of it, and if I hadn't have been a jockey, I probably might have went that way. But mm. he got me one day, and uh, I was injured, and uh, I had a hernia operation, and I was injured, and he got me up at Ningen, mm. and I was very nervous, of course, called a race, and then later he got me up at Warren, mm. and that uh, kicked it off, and then sometime after, you'd probably, you know, Paddy Burke, uh, like Cole Hodges, a bush race caller and a great character. Mm. And he was at Geary Races this day and he had a very bad throat. And uh, he said, you might call a race for me. And I just sort of didn't give it much thought. But I was finished after the cup race and I won the cup and I'm coming back to scale. Mm. And Paddy announces over the PA, he said, well, here's Harry Troy coming back on Monsignor after winning the cup. And he said, Harry's going to come and call the next race for me, saved me doing another Neville Rain impersonation. <laughs> and uh, and I, mm. I did, and it, it went okay, and uh, it went on from there. I I was off injured oh, sometime after. Mm. Talk about that a little later on. I had a broken pelvis. And Paddy Burke got me to go to Gulgong because he had Gulgong and Canoundra mm. both racing on the same day. Mm. And he said, look, could you do Gulgong for me, small fields? So I, I did that, and it went all right. And that then was, that was your first Ford, full meeting, was it, Harry? Gulgong, your first full was. meeting, it, yeah. Yeah, Gulgong was the first full meeting. Mm. And then, blow me down, I was nearly ready to come back riding, and Bobby Foran called me, and a wonderful bloke, mm. lovely guy, great race caller in the West, Bob Foran. And he said, hey, I haven't had a holiday for donkey's years, and we were looking forward to going away up the coast the family said, could you do the Mandurin races for me? So mm. that was my second full race day. Yeah. Well, you yeah, understudied Bruce Sherwin for quite some time in Macau before landing the gig. And at the start, early days there, you were calling to big on-course crowds and a huge television audience on the Macau Jockey Club's racing channel. Pretty scary stuff. Uh, so early in your race calling career, but you improved week by week, month by month, and you held that job for 20 years. Yes, John, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a great uh, time. Um, you know, when I look back and it was a very enjoyable time. When I started with, with Bruce, Bruce the main caller, I was the trainee. Then we had Steve Mooney and Franco Lau. We had four on the English commentary team. Mm. Then Bruce went back to New Zealand and I become the caller. I was about 30 years of age, so it was probably a bit late to get into a career as a race caller, but I was as keen as mustard. And pretty soon after that, by about 2002 or three, they cut the commentary team right back to one sole 
person, and that was me. Mm. So I had a pretty big workload. As you'd imagine, I'd do the race preview. I'd call the race, and then I'd do the dividends and a review, and before long it was time to do it all over again. So the workload was pretty big, mm. one-man band, and we'd have 10 races and big fields, 14, 16 runners. Um the most races I can recall, I remember doing 14 on a Friday night and 14 on the Saturday. Mm. So I needed a beer by the 28th race on Saturday. <laughs> I bet you did. There's little doubt about the best horse you got to call in Macau. A horse called Wonder Mossman was my absolute favourite. Mm. And he was an ex-Jerry Harvey horse. He was called Racing 8 in Australia. Mm -hmm. Now, he was originally earmarked for Hong Kong, and I think there was a niggly problem that uh, he didn't get a full pass. So he mm. ended up in Macau, and, John, he, he would just tear off mid-race. He'd be leading by seven, eight lengths. Look, I've seen him lead by 10 or 12, and I've seen him win by 12. And he was just this... Cracking horse, he went from 1,200 metres to 1,800. He won three Macau Gold Cups. Yeah. And the last Macau Gold Cup he won, he had this very light prep. He'd been out for six months with a tendon injury. Mm. And I think he had one bit of a trial and a bit of a jump out. And he came out and he just led and... Uh, blew them away. He used to absolutely break their hearts. Yep, I saw the replay of that third Macau Gold Cup win on YouTube during the week. I listened to your call. It wasn't hard to tell you really admired that horse. No, he was something else. And we had another very good sprinter, a cranking sprinter called Warcat. Mm. And he was just an out-and-out -out sprinter. Uh, Wonder Mossman was by Mossman. Warcat was by Taylor the Cat. He was a New Zealander. And he won 22 races. And, mm. and he set a record back in 2010 that was only just broken mm. just last year. Mm. And it was 107.2 for 1,200 metres. Good heavens. And he did it. He did it returning from an injury. He'd been in the vet hospital and spent time there and I remember when he came back to the track and someone said, crikey, this horse was in the vet hospital two or three weeks ago. Mm. And he came out fresh, led all the way, and he, he ran 107.3 for 1,200. Mm. You were born in 1951 in a tiny little place called Texas, right on the Queensland-New South Wales border. You were one of ten kids, five girls, five boys. Later... Uh, your mum and dad separated, they both remarried, and you gained a half-sister and a half-brother. Yes, we kept it even, six boys and six girls, so mm. <clears throat> I'm one of 12. And, uh, yeah, big family, John. We, we, um, I don't have a lot of memories of the property that dad had up there, but uh, he lost the property through... I guess, bad investments, uh, floods, mm. and and a, a bit of just old-fashioned bad luck, you know. Yeah. And um, when they split up, we, eight of uh, the youngest eight of us, we all went to a place called Bethel Children's Home. Mm. And it was at Dolby. Yeah. It was built by the Baptist Church for um, displaced kids. And Dad used to have to pay for us to go there. Uh, mm. to be there, I should say. But we spent a couple of years there, and uh, 
a good place. They were firm, but they were um, good Christian people, and yeah. um, they looked after us well. Your dad, Charles William, known universally as Billy, was a bush bookie, and at one stage he was doing nothing but fielding at race meetings all over New South Wales, sometimes into the Queensland outback. Now, you tell me Mum and Dad would pile all the kids into an old red truck and away you'd go, camping at caravan parks and local showgrounds, wherever you could put the truck. Times were tough back then, Harry, but for little kids it must have been a hell of an adventure. Well, when we look back on it, I mean, uh, when I tell people about it, I think they don't believe me, particularly younger people nowadays, but we travelled... From the age of 10, it was Dad and my stepmum, and we travelled from town to town and we'd have uh, a month at Burke and Dad would pack us off to school for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks while we're there, mm-hmm. and Dad would do the, the Burke races and the Ningen races and Cunnamulla or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then we, we'd be heading towards, um, we might have a month at Orange, and so we'd go to school at Orange for a couple of weeks cow or whatever, and we travelled all the way up into Queensland. I I went to school at Longreach. Mm. I've been to school at Blackhall, um, Claremont. Look, we we covered some miles and it was an Mm. adventure. And as kids, it was a tough life when I look back on it, but we didn't know any different. So, Mm. you know, it it was just our normal normal life. We missed a lot of school, Mm. but, yeah, it was a heck of an adventure, John, that's for sure. Mm. You were 13 when your dad said, forget about school and be my clerk at the races. And you did that with special permission from the stewards at every track. You tell me you had a a flair for figures and a neat way of recording the bets. You really enjoyed that. And these are the things that uh, have served you so well in later life. Yes, John, we were all good at figures, all of the kids, and we were all good readers. And even though we missed school, um, very good on figures and very neat handwriting. George, the eldest brother, he, he was better than me. Mm. Uh, he started before me, and Chris even came later. But we're all good on figures, neat handwriting, and the big bookies' ledgers that um, they had in the old days. <clears throat> well, that was my job, and I'd be recording all the bets. and. Uh, it was a busy time, and back the, in those days in the West, people had a quid and they'd bet pretty well, and you'd have a pretty good bookies ring, mm. even at places like Burke and Brewarna mm. and uh, far out, yes. Mm. Sadly, by the time you turned 14, you and Dad were not getting on, and the friction mounted to the extent that Harry took off and hitchhiked all the way to Walgett where Brother George was working for a horse trainer called Harold Hamilton. Now, Harold couldn't fit you in at the time, but he was kind enough to find you a job as a jackaroo at Key Key Station, about 14 miles away, and you were there for five years. You loved it. I certainly did, and, <laughs> yes, I, I did the, the Harry Holt, the Bolt, and uh, mm. um, when I got to Harold Stables... Exactly. It was it was the 65 drought, mm. and I was 14, 
And he said, look, I'd love to apprentice you, but I don't have enough horses and times are a bit tough. And, and he got me this job as a jackaroo and they were a great family, Tom and Joyce Dow. They had two girls, mm. um, never had a son. So they took me in and I lived in the house with them. Uh, the idea was, Harold said, to have six or seven months there, maybe you can come back into town and I'll apprentice you. But I loved it that much. I stayed five years. Mm. And it was a great time. And Tom was a fabulous amateur rider, had been, mm. and he was just a, a great all-round horseman. So he kicked me off at the picnic races as an amateur. Mm. And um, Was that I, a pilliger? Yes, I had my very first ride in a race. Yeah. And I was 14 years old. I was still a few weeks shy of my 15th birthday. Mm. It was about 10 months after I went to Kiki, Pilliga mm. picnics, and I'd ridden at a few what we used to call number niners, mm. the, the old bush unregistered, but they were walking starts. And I remember on the way to the race and I said to the boss, Tom, I've never been out of the barriers. Mm. He said, don't worry. He says, it's just like a stand and start. Yeah, so <laughs> it was. I was a bit nervous, and you wouldn't believe um, just quickly, so I don't get off the track too much. I, I, my brother George was a champion amateur. He was riding in the same race, but he drew out wide. But I drew alongside of Kevin Quinn, mm. the father of Rodney Quinn. Gee was and yeah, yep. And Kevy was a great amateur jockey and a great bloke. And he's George said. Quinny will look after you. So I gets in. I drew one. Quinny draws two, and he's telling me mm. what to do. Just relax, just relax. And he said, okay, there's about three to go in. Now he said, rein him up a little bit. Get yourself a finger full of mane. He said, mm. and when those gates open, he said, just yell and go for your life. Mm. And I jumped out my bedroom to the corner. <laughs> it, was, it was a great thrill. Your first winner came at Engonia at your sixth ride at the picnics. Horse's name was Blue Cargo. It was, and it was a funny story because they flew the, the very good Sydney jockey down, Roy Williams, mm. to ride at the Ngonia Cup meeting for the day, and the O'Malley family flew him down, and he won the Cup on King's Heath, and he rode Blue Cargo in the Progressive, mm. and he was favourite. Anyway, he went around in the 1,200-metre Progressive, and he got beat. So comes to the last race, it's a four-furlong welter, and Roy Williams was riding the top weight, elicited ass and mm. favourite. And Billy Reid said, we've got 59 runners for the meeting. We've never had 60, mm. so I'm going to run my horse again, Blue Cargo. So he came into the room and I'm sitting there and he said to RJ Reggie Williams, which was Neil Williams' dad, Yeah. Uh, he said, Reggie, would you ride the horse in the last race? And Reggie had ridden three winners mm. and Reggie said, listen, I'm – I'm pretty keen to get out to the bar and have a beer. And he said, I've got to chase me owners for the sling. <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah. "And uh, look, no, I don't really want to ride it, uh, Mr. Ridge. Thanks a lot. And he said, look, it's got no chance. It's out of its class. Put this little kid on. Mm. It'll be great experience for him. Yeah. And he, well, Billy Reed said, okay, that suits me. So they had 60 runners. It was a record for uh, the Ngonia Race Club at the time. Yeah. And... We drew almost the outside gate in a field of about 12. Mm. Well, he came out like a scalded cat. He led by three and he won by three and he broke the track record. And Harry Troy had got the monkey off his back. Well, it was me 
fifth or sixth race ride. Yeah. Um, f- funny story about Blue Cargo. He never won another race and, mm. and f- for two more years mm. until I rode him at Ingonia two years later. Mm. He was my third race winner at the time, so my first and third mm. winners were two years apart because I was still an amateur. Mm. And we linked up again and we won and it was typical Bush um, talk. Billy Ridd said, son, Mm. I really think you've got the key to this horse. (laughs) (laughs) Two years apart. After two years, and he never won another race for old Blue Cargo. Well, you had 112 rides all up at the amateurs over four years. You rode a dozen winners, but you loved it, and it certainly sparked your ambition to become a professional jockey. Now, moving along to 1970, you're back in Walgett. You gain an apprenticeship with a marvellous old trainer called Albert Hazlitt. Albert could shoe him, he could vet him, he could transform any kind of rogue. The best story is a horse called Silver Doublet who'd been trained in Sydney originally. By the time he got to Walgett, he would jib, he'd buck, he'd whip around, you name it, Silver Doublet could do it. But old Albert sorted him out. He won a string of races in the bush and one day he took him back to Randwick and he beat Fleet Zephyr, which was trained by Tommy Smith. And you tell me TJ blew up after the race. He did. It was very, very public in the papers that um, he complained about these bush horses. He said they're winning all these races about the place and they come to the city and you've got them down on the bottom weight and it's not right, they're, they're, they're getting in too light at the weights. And it mm. certainly wasn't the the first time that TJ blew up over mm. something like that, but he was a cracking horse, blue, uh, silver doublet. Mm. And um, he won a stack of races around the bush and he won that race in town. And um, the great Jack Thompson rode him in a Doncaster. I'm mm. pretty sure it was the Doncaster. And he had a wide draw, but he had no luck whatsoever. But he was adamant when he came back. He said to Albert he's, Hazlitt, he said, oh, but any luck at all, yeah. we could have won the race. Goodness we could have won it. So, you know, it was a hell of a, a mm. big jump for a bush horse and, and to compete at that level. Mm. Uh, Albert had another great old Sydney cast-off called Blazing Arrow, who'd won races early in his career for a great Rose Hill trainer, Bert Lyle. Now, when he arrived in Walgett, everybody would tell you that the horse had a pretty serious heart strain. Well, it didn't bother old Albert. The horse finished up winning 50 races altogether. He was still going at age 10. And you tell me, every kid in the Hazlitt stable won a race on Blazing Arrow, including you. Yeah, good old Blazo. We all had, we all had a go with Blazo, and I won a race on him at Brewarna. And it's quite a funny story. He was in a four furlong welter. He had ten stone ten. I had seven pounds allowance, so he carried ten three. But the stable also had a very good sprinter called Crispy in the race, mm. and she had something like seven twelve on her back. And Larry Bradley rode it, and the four furlongs was a bit sharp for old Blazing Arrow. So <clears throat> Albert said. I don't think he can win, but he said, do your best. You might get some prize money. Mm. But he said, Crispy looked like being too good for them. Well, I came out and he was back last. And coming to the turn, he starts to get up on their backs. I was pretty green. 
the old horse, he just seen a run, so he just stepped out and took the run. Mm. Then he switched back oh. to the inside. Mm. Um, I was pretty much a passenger. The old horse navigated his way through the pack <laughs> and we come scorch. Yeah. We come scorching up the rails and we knocked off the stable mate who they put all the money on. Oh dear. So it was a bit of a bit of a uh, a quiet trip on the way home in the yeah. truck with the boss, I can tell you. That was a bittersweet experience. It was, it was. But oh look, Galbert didn't mind. He was just shell shocked. He just didn't mm. think that he'd he'd get them at the uh, 800 metres or the four furlongs with the 10 stone 10 and the wide draw. Mm. But he was a marvellous old horse and he just kept winning races and he went right up to, he got to the 50 mark. Um, I found a clipping the other day where he was on his 44th winner and that was in 1972 mm. and he, he still raced for a few years after that. Yeah. Your apprenticeship was unspectacular, Harry, to say the least. You were 19 when you started. You could barely make eight stone, opportunities were scarce, and you got sick of it. You gave it away for a while and you went to work in a Golden Fleece service station, the old Golden Fleece, which was merged into Caltex Australia about 40 years ago. Yeah, remember the ads, Golden Fleece, stop for mm. a Stanley. Well, I was a Stanley. I was in my little blue uniform and mm. I was pumping gas into cars and sweeping the driveway and doing grease and all changes. And, look, I was only away a couple of months, a few months, mm. and I didn't get greatly heavy, I guess heavy by jockeys, uh, the weight scale in those days, but I probably got up to about nine stone. But mm. a good friend of mine, a young bloke named Gary Malloy, didn't have anyone to ride his horses to work. So I'd ride work in the morning for Gary and then change and I'd be at the service station by 7 o'clock mm. uh, to do my day at the service station. So I kept riding a bit of work. But that led to the Easter race meeting was coming up at Lightning Ridge. Mm. And Gary had his mare Tingle join. I think the race was a progressive handicap, about a 1,000 metres. Mm. And he said, look, I can't get anyone to ride her. So I still had my licence because uh, I was riding track work. And he said, come and ride her. Mm. And she had a, a good bit of weight. So I said, finally, okay, I'll go and ride it. Mm. So I got out there with one ride. Mm. And a guy from Canamble, Ernie Hodgson, he had a horse and he didn't have a jockey. And he said, would you ride mine? I said, okay. Mm. And there was a couple of trainers from Queensland and they lobbed there with a horse each and no jockey. So they said, would you ride these for us? And I said, yeah, okay, good. I've got four rides, so I'm going to get a few bombing riding fees. Yeah. Well, John, the whole four won. Oh, <laughs> what a day. What a day. What a day. I yeah. was back in business. Yeah. So, so the, the, I had the bug again, and I, so I pushed on from there. You sure did, and you travelled a million miles, and you rode at places like Kunnamulla, Dirranbandi, St George, Nurama, which is actually on a cattle station, Fargaminda. You name the place, and Harry Troy rode there. Yes, I look. I, I I was all over the place. Um, I could tell you a very funny story quickly about Nurama, uh, Nurama, or as they say at the cattle station. It's a once year race uh, race day, and it's big, very big. Mm. And it was particularly big back then when there was a few quid about in the bush, and they boast a, a three furlong straight. The straight is as long as Flemington. Good so I, I got mm. a call from an old trainer named Cocky Easton to go and ride his horse in the cup. Mm. And 
I duly won the cup for old Cocky, which was good. He'd been a legendary trainer, but he was on his last year. Mm. But the funny story, when I got there, he said, look, I've got you a couple of rides earlier so you can have a look at the track. Mm. So my first ride was this cranky mare called My Sweet Darling, mm. and she was owned and trained by the race caller, young race caller calling on the day. So I rode this My Sweet Darling early in the day, and it ran a modest race. But those race days, the last race used to be called the Beaten Stakes, mm. and it was for horses that hadn't run first, second, or third on the day. Mm. So he wanted to run it again, and I had a ride in it. So he turned to this old jockey next to me and said, uh, whose name was Jim Hickey, he said, Hick, will you ride My Sweet Darling in the last? And he said, oh, gee, no, look, I've had enough. I want to go to the bar and have a drink. <laughs> and he said, Hick, you've called a few races before. And he said, yes, I have. And he said, I'll tell you what. I'll borrow your gear and I'll ride it, and you go and call the race. And that's exactly what happened. The commentator rode his own horse. The jockey called the race. Mm. Um, Paul Funnel, when he pulled up, he was blowing like a gale, and he, <laughs> his face was the colour of a bushfire, John. <laughs> and it was funny when he stripped off to have a shower, he was red raw chafed all on the inside of the legs and, the, and his backside. I felt sorry for that guy, and he said, crikey, it's a lot harder game than I thought it was. <laughs> Could only happen at Nurama. Now, Could only happen, would never happen again. You married your first wife, Lynn, in Walgett in 1974, and you continued to ride in remote places on Saturdays, but you also landed a job in the hardware and building supplies business, and that got you a nickname, didn't it, when you were race riding? It was. They referred to me as Hardware Harry Troy, and I worked in the hardware industry for a lot of years, John, because I, always, I wasn't good enough to support the family just by riding, and it was too heavy. Mm. And uh, so I worked in the hardware industry in Walgett and in Dubbo mm. for a number of years, at least more than a decade. Mm. Always had to have a job to support me. I actually had three years with MLC Insurance at one time. Yes, I know. So I was fairly versatile. Ticket sales got underway on Friday the 1st of July in the 2022 Kosciuszko Sweepstakes. Your opportunity to share in the $1.3 million prize money on offer for the world's richest race for country train gallopers. New South Wales residents can purchase $5 sweepstakes tickets via the TAB app, local pubs and clubs, TAB agencies and at New South Wales race meetings. 14 winning tickets will be drawn on the 8th of September with each winner then selecting a New South Wales country or ACT trained horse to race in their slot once they've agreed with the horse's owner group as to how they will share prize money for the race. Ticket sales will close at 11.59pm on Wednesday the 7th of September 2022. The much-anticipated The Kosciuszko Sweepstakes Draw will take place on Thursday the 8th of September and will be broadcast live on Sky Thoroughbred Central and Racing New South Wales .com.au Now, Harry, time's on the wing, mate, so I'm going to praise uh, the next little part of your career. You started to pick up rides in the Central West at places like Dubbo and Wellington. That prompted you to apply for a job at the Macquarie Stud at Wellington. You got that job. Greg Henman was private trainer. 
The Baxter family raced a lot of their own horses and you won a stack of races in those well-known orange and black colours. Then you got an offer of a job at Astley's Hardware Store in Dubbo. Good conditions, good pay, new adventure. Uh, So you and Lynn moved on to Dubbo and it was the same story. Track work in the morning and then off to the day job. And it was in Dubbo in 1977 when your first son, Jason, first saw the light of day. It was, and a great occasion for us. Uh, Jason, 77, and Nathan came along in 79. Mm-hmm. And then in 84, Ashley arrived. Ashley was born uh, with Down syndrome. You would have seen him around the, the racetracks, and mm-hmm. uh, he's, a, he's a cracking little kid and as sharp as a whip, Ash. And, uh, yeah, that was... Uh, the, the time in Dubbo, and um, I worked in the hardware game there for quite a few years. The only reason I got out of the hardware game is uh, I started off the New South Wales Country Racing magazine uh, with my brother George, which we had for about around it for about three years. And following that, then we made the move to Musselbrook in '89. Yeah, with one bad accident in between, Harry. And this was uh, a freakish accident. You were doing a mate a favour, giving a horse barrier education at Dubbo. The horse reared over backwards, landed on you and broke your pelvis front and back. It was a very complicated injury. Now, through a friend, you heard about an English doctor who was practising in Dubbo. And this man performed a minor miracle. He did, John. Um, when I bre- You wouldn't believe you'd break it back and front. The back is a bone, so your, your bone is always going to knit. The front is called the pubic symphysis, and it's held together. Your pelvis is like a ring, and it's held together with a cartilage, but I completely ripped that, and that doesn't grow back. Now, my the initial um, diagnosis was, no, you'll never be on a go-back riding. You'll end up bandy-legged and the pressure on your pelvis you won't be able to take and you'll end up with a widespread look like the old knocked up knocked about cowboys Mm. but this english doctor he told me he'd never done the operation himself before but it can be done he said i'm going to put a plate Mm. in the front of your pelvis and there's there's only three screws either side Mm. he said and that's going to support you and give you stability and he said you give yourself nine or ten months and you'll be as good as gold now john i've still got the plate in me nowadays, and it's it'll stay forever. Mm. But I, I came back, and it was I was as good as gold. Yeah, and you've still got the plate, and you wouldn't know it's there. No, I, I honest to God, aside from the scar, you wouldn't know it's there. But mm. um, it gave me the the stability because it's a hell of a lot of pressure with jockeys and the way we ride up short. But that gave me the st- stability, and it never bothered me. And, uh, again, it's never bothered me since. Dennis Firth was the George Moore of the West in that era with 16 straight premierships under his belt. In the 86-87 season, you knocked him off his throne with 81 winners, which was a record at the time. 87-88, you won the premiership again. And then in 88-89, halfway through the season, you were 15 in front when you fell at Wellington, breaking a collarbone and cracking the pelvis again. You were out for three months, 
Dennis Firth grabbed a narrow lead again. And then on the last day of the season, you caught a light plane to Brewarrina. You rode three winners and snared another premiership. I did. We got up in the in the nick of time, John. And, uh, I had a choice of riding a Gilgandra or Brewarrina, and Dennis had a one-win lead coming into that day. And uh, I opted to go to Brewarrina. I had some good support. We actually chartered a small plane, a couple of mates, and we hooked it out to Brewarrina and three winners, and that gave me uh, three straight Western Premierships in a row. Um, prior to that, Dennis Firth had won 16 straight. That's some sort of an effort, isn't it? Mm, but oh. I got him and uh, I beat him for three years straight mm. before I headed off to the Hunter Valley. Well, you found yourself sneaking to the Hunter Valley from time to time, riding a few winners for trainers like Jim Gleeson and Frank Osling and later... Pat Farrell, and it was Pat who talked you into moving permanently to Musselbrook. You were the right age, 38 at the time. Yep, and it was it was good because um, the move there, aside from my apprentice days, it was the first time that I didn't have a, a job uh, through the week and, mm. and there was so much racing in the Hunter and Pat had something like, Pat and Frank Farrell had something like 80 horses, I think, mm. at the time when I went there. They had horses everywhere. Mm. And um, he said, you come here and you ride work and I'll give you the pick of my rides. And mm. it it was good. It was um, too good an opportunity to pass up. And I, I, I absolutely flew first 12 months, 80-something winners. Yeah. Uh, and then it all come crashing down again at uh, Cessnock in no, 1991. Broke the femur. Yeah. Yes, and it was a very simple fall and nobody caused it. The horse simply crossed its legs and I didn't even, the way I felt, I was surprised I sat up and my right leg was facing completely the wrong way around. Oh, dear. But I was very fortunate, John, once again to get a very good bone specialist because it was a very bad break. They couldn't pin it. Mm. They had to plate it either side. But that was... I was close to a year and a half out of the saddle. Well, when you came back, your first day was at Corindai. What did you do? A winning double. You were a hard bloke to keep down. Look, I, I had a great start. Just two winners for Graham Hill, and they were reserve track and brook opera. But I stayed more to the bush tracks when I came back just to get my confidence at a uh, at a real high again, and I think the first eight race days, I first eight race meetings that I went to, I rode winners. Some of them I rode doubles. Like I just picked up completely, just where I'd left off before, mm. and it was terrific. And I'd never ridden a hundred winners before that. I'd come close, but that first full season back, um, I started back late in mid '92. The next full season was my first uh, time I topped the 100 and I topped it every other year after that until mm. I came to Macau. Yep. A lovely thing happened to you at the end of the 93-94 season when you were presented with a special trophy for your contribution to New South Wales country racing. Now, that's an award usually reserved for administrators, Harry. It was, and I was very... Uh, very pleasantly surprised when I got a phone call 
from, a, I think, a young fellow named Colin Tuck mm. that worked at the AJC. And yeah. uh, he said, you've been nominated for the James Carr Trophy. Mm. I think it might have been the James H. Carr Trophy. Correct. And I yeah. said, oh, okay. He said, well, not only have you been nominated, but he said, the process is done. He said, you are the recipient of it for this year. Mm. And it, it's a, it's an award that mostly goes to, to racing administrators and everything like that. But uh, it was wonderful. We were invited to Randrick, Lynn and I. We had a big luncheon with a, a lot of the committee people and a big presentation uh, in the in Randwick enclosure. So it was certainly a great honour. It was uh, now uh, that that, I... that was the season ninety three ninety four when you rode one hundred and eighteen winners and you were the top country based jockey in the nation. I was, and um, my that was one hundred and eighteen. Um, my best was one hundred and twenty two. And yeah. you, would you believe I ran second to Dale Spriggs, who rode yeah. something like 130. You think you'd win would, it with he, 122, wouldn't you? He rode 130, and I think he was out for the last month of the season. He he had a, an amazing season. Um, it, it, it was a lot of winners. But, gee, John, after I left um, and came overseas, Greg Ryan and Alan Robinson were riding 200 a season. So oh, yeah. uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Harry, your all-time favourite horse was a little stallion called Dancing Sun, who won 16 all up, a lot of placings, 430,000. Back then, you won 10 on him, including the Canberra Cup. He was a special little horse, wasn't he? Yeah, I actually won 13 on him, John. Of his 16 wins, Mm. uh, I won 13. Chris Munts, I got Chris to ride him twice when I couldn't make the weight, and he won on him both times. Mm. And I was suspended, one of my rare suspensions, and Darren Beedman won on him at Canterbury. But, yeah, look, 13 wins. Uh, the crowning glory was the Canberra Cup. Add to that the South Grafton Cup, which I still think he holds the race record. He carried 60 kilos. Mm. Coffs Harbour Cup, he won by seven lengths with 60 kilos. You call the race. Mm. And then the Canberra Cup was the crowning glory. But he was a mighty little horse and he could carry weight, bold front-running horse, and he was as tough as nails. You speak very affectionately of Spinner Star, a gelding by Capricorno. You won 19 races on Spinner Star. That's hard to do. Yeah, 19 races out of about 20. He won 23. I won 19. Dalun won three. And Billy Aspros won one. Mm. Um, he was a funny little horse. He was only little. And he would. He was the most contrary horse I've ever ridden. Mm. He would jump out one day and decide to lead. And then the next day he'd fall out and he'd be stone motherless last. Mm. And then he might decide mid-race, oh, gee, I better get into this. And I got on fantastic with him because... I just virtually let him do what he wanted to do. So I, I never had a plan. Mm. And he had this weird habit that he developed um, later. And if he, after a race, when you come back to scale, if the enclosure gate wasn't open, often in those days they wouldn't let the horses in, back into the enclosure until all the first three numbers were semaphored. So if he'd yeah. come trotting back and that gate wasn't open, mm. he would prop 
and he wouldn't move. I'd have to get off and lead him into the saddling paddock to oh, unsaddle him. Dear me. Too smart yeah. for his own good. He was a great crowd favourite, and they'd give him a clap, and I think he, he got to realise that old prop, and I'm going to get an ovation for this. Yeah. And, uh, but he was a wonderful little horse. Got a soft spot for a little flying machine called Terralite. Oh, couldn't she go? Wow, she was that quick and she was tiny. Mm. She was even tinier than um, Spinner Star and Dancing Sun. I reckon she'd be mm. flat out being 15 hand. Trained by Philip Hood, yeah. absolute gentleman of a bloke. Mm. But, um, gee, she, she was a flying machine. The last race I won on her was the Dewsbury Dash mm. on Black Opal Day and she – she just ran them off their legs. She won by about six lengths. Mm. You carved yourself a little piece of history without realising it one day when you ran third at Gilgandra on a horse called, wait for it, Fine Cotton. Not long yes, before sorry. he was purchased by the perpetrators of the infamous Sting. Now, the day the horse posing as Fine Cotton won at Eagle Farm... You were driving home from Trundle Races, listening on the car radio. What was your initial reaction? It was so funny, John. I was probably one of the last to ride him um, in our area because he was a Wellington horse. Michael Diamond was his regular jockey, but I rode him this day, Gilgandra. He was sold pretty soon after that. And like you say, I was coming back from Trundle Races I was just back after a hernia operation, so I had one ride in the first, mm. and I'm ripping home. <clears throat> and uh, I'm driving along the road, and we used to always listen to racing radio 2KY, and they said, let's cross the river to Wayne Wilson, I think it was, for the next. And mm. oh, he said, there's been a massive plunge on the New South Wales, former New South Wales country gallop of fine cotton. And I thought, strike me fat. <laughs> Why would you be? Why would you want to be on fine cotton? Yeah. So I listened, I listened to the race and battling it out with uh, Harbour Gold all the way down the straight, they hit the line and fine cotton's just won and mm. I nearly ran off the road and my first thought was, crikey, Brisbane must be weak at the moment. Really? And yeah. it wasn't long after then, hold your tickets, no correct weight in Brisbane. Of course, the rest is history. Yep, infamous history and... Uh, Fine Cotton, uh, or Bull Personality, posing as Fine Cotton, was very well graded on the day. A great example of your reputation with city trainers was the day Jack Denham brought you from Musselbrook to ride a two-year-old called Power Factor at Rose Hill. You didn't let him down. I can still see you in red and blue diagonal stripes with white sleeves. John, I'm looking at the picture as we speak. Um, yeah, power factor. Uh, Chris Munch was supposed to ride the horse and he was um, he got injured. Mm. Uh, he was stood down, actually, from his commitments um, just uh, for a short period. But, yeah, the red, blue stripes, white sleeves, white cap. And he was owned by Nick Moratus of mm. Might and Power fame. Yeah, who passed away and, very um, recently. He did, and mm. yeah, look, it was uh, it was a real um, buzz without a doubt. Um, man, a few words was um, Mr. Denham, Jack Denham. He just <laughs> said, "Son, if he jumps well enough and he can lead, well, you can lead." Yeah. Uh, this other thing might annoy you, but and he said, "Just make sure you save a bit mm. in him." And 
yeah, it was uh, it was a real buzz. I can tell you. Well, of course it was, and you know, to put it bluntly, uh, denim didn't put mugs on. <laughs> it was a feather in your cap. It was, and 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 they did ring me sometime after when all the top jockeys were at the carnival in Brisbane. Mm. And they had four or five rides me at Rose Hill, mm. but I'd made commitments to at Tamworth, and I, I, I couldn't get out of them. Mm. I'd never let them down. No, of course. And um, I, I sort of had to forego the the commitments. But the, the fact that he rang me up to come to Rose Hill to ride for the whole day for him was, mm. uh, well, that was an honour for me. Mm. Harry, I'm aware that your all-time favourite jockeys include old-timers like Dennis Firth. Ray and Robert Bradley, Bill Aspros, Matey Malloy, Garth Baird, Spike Jones, Reggie Payne, Robert Thompson. Wayne Harris was one of your great favourites. But you're adamant the greatest jockey you've ever seen was the lanky Englishman who died in Switzerland just a few weeks ago. You got to ride against Leicester in his twilight years. I did, John. He came, uh, I think it was 95, and he came to Australia. It was like a farewell tour. Uh, Part of that tour, he won the Black Opal on Zadok. Mm. And he would come not just to the city tracks. He he came out to ride in the Wellington Boot Meeting. He came to Corindai. They're pretty tricky tracks. And Lester was 59. He was riding just as short, and he rode those tracks uh, with the greatest of ease. And I got to know him a bit, and we had some good conversations. But he was—he uh, was a marvel. He's uh, for me the mm. greatest jockey that I've ever seen. Yeah. And riding against him, it was a privilege for us guys when he came to the to the bush. Mm. Mm. And he—he uh, he was. Uh, they said he was a quiet bloke who couldn't get words out of him, but he was quite um, quite approachable. He'd have a good old yarn in the jockey's room, and I think he enjoyed being out there in the bush too. Mm. Oh, I'm sure he did. But Lester was very deaf, acutely deaf, and uh, that had a lot to do with his uh, manner of speech. He, he tended to mumble a bit. He was hard to catch. He was, he was, but what a what a great jockey he was. And, uh, mm. yeah, when you start talking of jockeys, and it's it's you're always going to miss out on someone. <clears throat> Listening to your 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 podcast with Gary Cleesey, mm. and he spoke fondly of Leon Fox. Mm. Gee whiz, he was a good jockey. And fellas like <clears throat> Danny Fram, mm. uh, Leon up in the north, they, they were outstanding jockeys. And um, Skeeter Kelly was another mm. legend of the north. There's so many that my career has been that long, John, uh, that, you know, you tend to sort of, they slip your mind. But when you think back, gee, oh. I've ridden against some Cracking jockeys. Mm. 2010 was a big year for you in Macau. You were at the top of your game as a race caller, and this was the year when you married your second wife, Anna, who was a native of the Philippines. Yes, 2010. We met 2008. We got married in 2010, and I... uh, I, uh, Along with Anna, I got two more boys, uh, Aaron mm. and Ashley. They were four and five. Mm. Gee, they're um, eighteen and nineteen now. They're big boys. Aaron's going to the Polytech University here, and Ashley's doing his last year's schooling. But yeah, I, uh, I certainly fell in love with Asia, and um, and uh, 
you know, life's been uh, pretty good, John. It's been a lovely chat, Harry. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Sadly, because of time constraints, I've had to leave a few good bits out. Hopefully we can do it again one day. Uh, What does the future hold? I know you enjoy living in Asia, but the ties to this country are obviously very strong too. Yes, John. um, People say when I retired last year, are you coming back to Australia and my first reaction, well, I'm 70 years old. Mm. Um, there's a stack of young up-and-coming race callers. Uh, what would I do? Mm. So for the moment, I mean, getting the kids to finish their schooling is the top priority. Um, still a lot of things I want to do in my life. John, I, I, I mm. love music and I play the guitar. Mm. I've spent a lot of time improving that. Uh, I play the guitar, I love singing, mm. and I like writing. I like to write, and I've I've spent a fair bit of time even trying to improve my writing skills, my grammar and, and creativity. So um, for the moment, I'm certainly going to be here, and with COVID, it's certainly put a, a bit of a dampener on things. Um, mm. You're in total lockdown as we speak, aren't you? Yes, and, you know, mm. we certainly put a bit of a damper on the travel, even just to the Philippines, which is a couple of hours away or anywhere else. Mm. So we've just got to get through the COVID situation. Um, but as far as uh, myself, John, I'm pretty busy every day. I watch all the Australian racing. Mm. Um, we've got the racing here. And like I said, I've got my hobbies, writing and, and the music. So um, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty busy guy. That email you sent me a few weeks ago, of course, uh, motivated me to get you on the line for this long overdue chat. I'm very pleased I did, as are the many old racing mates in Australia who knew and respected Harry Troy during his golden years in country racing in New South Wales. Thanks for your time, mate. Great to catch up. It's been wonderful, Johnny. Thanks so much and uh, take care. All the best. My special guest, Harry Troy, on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Ticket sales got underway on Friday the 1st of July in the 2022 Kosciuszko Sweepstakes. Your opportunity to share in the $1.3 million prize money on offer for the world's richest race for country train gallopers. New South Wales residents can purchase $5 sweepstakes tickets via the TAB app, local pubs and clubs, TAB agencies and at New South Wales race meetings. 14 winning tickets will be drawn on the 8th of September with each winner then selecting a New South Wales country or ACT trained horse to race in their slot once they've agreed with the horse's owner group as to how they will share prize money for the race. Ticket sales will close at 11.59pm on Wednesday the 7th of September 2022. The much-anticipated The Kosciuszko Sweepstakes Draw will take place on Thursday the 8th of September and will be broadcast live on Sky Thoroughbred Central and RacingNewSouthWales.com.au.